Hi, my name is Ryan Cobbs. I'm a partner at Carlton Fields in our West Palm Beach office. I'm also the co-practice group leader of our mass tort and product liability practice group. And I represent companies involved in mass tort and product liability litigation uh, in Florida and around the country. And I'm Ashley Drum. I'm also a partner in Carlton Fields West Palm Beach office and a member of the mass tort and product liability practice group. My practice focuses on representing global and national clients in mass tort and individual litigation. Ryan and I have worked together managing mass torts, closing in on almost a decade. And Ryan, I wanted to start with the call, the call that comes in on 4 p.m. on a Friday. And you've handled more of those than I have. So can you talk a little bit about what that is like? Sure. I mean, we're here today to talk about that call that uh, many of us hope we get, but we're also a little um, concerned when we get it. And I'm talking about the call from a current client or uh, a new client that comes to you with, with a problem, but not just a small problem, a big one or a growing one. And that's kind of the emerging mass tort. Um, you may get a call. Hopefully it's not on a, a Friday afternoon at at four o'clock, but whenever it is you get it, um, there'll be a whole range of thoughts and emotions going through your head about what to do next. Because as many of us know who practice in this area, these cases are not like any other type of litigation. They are large, they are complex, they are fast moving. And if you don't have your ducks in a row early on, um, they can kind of get out of the gate ahead of you and they're hard to, to reel back in. Um, but we're here today to talk a little bit about um, an article that Ashley and I wrote on, on mass tort management. There's lots of articles out there about mass torts, whether it's experts or trials. And, and when we looked at the landscape of, of the literature out there, we just didn't think there was a lot on management, which isn't necessarily the, um, the sexiest thing you can talk about, write about in, a, um, in an article or on a podcast. But as we go through things today, I think you'll get an idea of, of how critical it is to success for your client uh, in that area. Um, so, Ashley, maybe you can tell us a little bit about you know, why you're interested, why we think it's important, and why we're here to talk about it today. Yeah, absolutely. And management is not something that was forefront in my mind when I started working on these cases with Ryan and his team. It was something that case by case and and working with such a body of um, active complaints, I realized was really, really critical. And it's it's kind of like a very long term chess game. You create your plan, you set it up, you have your initial things that you must do, you have your mid game strategies. And then depending on how far along an individual case gets or a group of cases, you have your closing maneuvers. And so those are things that are really fascinating. And um, these are all important because they can so easily be taken for one product, for example. And of course, you have to tailor things depending on the client and the, the nature of the product that's at issue. But it's very satisfying to see a game plan work when repeated successfully and repeated by really good people. So now that I've, I've been working more and more on the management side, as I become more senior, I 
and Ryan, I mean, we're both always looking for ways to run cases more efficiently, more effectively. And some of the things that I do, um, I really look to different team members at different stages. You have to look not just to the partners you work with, but also to the legal assistants, to the paralegals, to the associates. There are tips and there are strategies that can be adopted from the habits of really good team members and implemented on a broader scale. So those are very important. And one thing I'll, I'll add to that, you know, there's this old adage that I think lots of lawyers have heard and, and I don't necessarily subscribe to, but it's this idea that lawyers are not good managers or can't be good managers. And I, I do think it's true that you're not necessarily taught management in law school. And a lot of times coming up in the associate ranks, you're not taught per se, but I don't think lawyers can't be good managers. Um, I know they can, and it's such a critical part of, of practice, particularly in mass tort, and it's often overlooked or time isn't put into it or training or mentoring isn't focused on it. Uh, when we think of kind of great lawyers, particularly in the movies, you know, you think of the amazing cross-examination by Tom Cruise and A Few Good Men, or the the opening statement and closing arguments in Philadelphia by Denzel Washington. And that's what we think of as lawyers. But but there's so much management that goes into, into that. I mean, if you could think of those two movies, for example, well, there was a whole bunch of people, uh, if, if they were real, that were, were managing the case before that to get to the point where you even get to have that, that sort of Hollywood moment um, in, in the courtroom or that great brief that, that wins a case. So, so that's why we both thought this was so important to talk about and why lawyers need to train themselves to be better managers and to mentor um, up and coming lawyers to be managers as well. So Ashley, why don't you start us off and going through some of the the highlights um, from our article uh, and start off with the first point and why it's important to learn your client's goals. Will do. And, and I think it's that is really important. And, and I think the initial reaction a lot of people may have is, oh, that's that's very obvious and or that's very cliche. And the fact is, it's it's worth bringing up and discussing, even if it is both of those things, because there are a lot of sub points underneath it that are not obvious that are really important and I think worth fleshing out. And so. The first thing is when a client comes to you with a problem, I think most of us are geared to immediately be on the alert. And many times the the response can be to jump up, jump right in and say, I have a plan, I have a plan. And it's great if you have a plan. Um, but the first thing that has to happen is to not just hear what your client says their goals are, but really talk through them, okay, this is what your goal is. And all right, do you understand what we foresee as being necessary to, to achieve those goals? Because a lawyer's plan may have a lot of underlying assumptions about what needs to be done and how the litigation can be managed. And the client and the client's goal may have another set of assumptions and, and the two sets may differ, they may conflict. And so it's important to have a, a very strategic talk through about what what are we going to do and it can be very easy to rush past that if there are complaints that are being filed that are time sensitive and advantages that need to be gained by immediate action but for example 
when you're discussing strategies with your client and your client may say to you, we just, we want these resolved really quickly. And you talk through, okay, to resolve it quickly, this is what I would recommend. We're going to do A, B, C. Well, in talking about those things, you may realize that what the client really wants is not, not exactly a quick resolution, but we need to conduct some target discovery. We need to have some motion practice based on that. And then we want the quick resolution because those two things together may make it a less expensive quick resolution. It may make it a more wide reaching and effective quick resolution. So the other thing that's important to talk about when reaching this goal, and Ryan, this is something you've really, I think, taught me over the years is the cost. The The, the cost discussion must be had the budget is one of the most unfun things about <laughs> about litigation planning, and um, it is extremely time consuming. And it's very easy to push that a little bit back while you immediately address the things that need to be triaged. But the sooner that you can share with the client the realistic cost of reaching the client's goals, the better able. Um, you'll be positioned to really know if what your management strategy is is going to work for your client's litigation and financial goals. So that's another that's another unsexy thing is the budget. <laughs> um, and I don't even think that came up in the article, but just talking about it, I really realized it's important. And not only have that conversation at the beginning, but you're going to have that consistently through the life of, and again, we're not talking about a case, we're talking about mass litigation. So that is something you need to be checking in quarterly, annually, these things go on for a long time uh, and goals can change when costs change and, and strategies change and are successful or not so successful. And and one thing I wanted to, to finish out this particular piece uh, with Ryan before we talk about some of the other really important things that go on in managing a mass tort is conducting the threat assessment because just like the cost of litigation over time can really shift what a client's goals are, I think the initial goals, it's important to recognize what is going to be impacting it. The threat of large damages, um, the risk of protracted litigation, as opposed to the silver bullet that just kind of quickly extinguishes the litigation. I think we'd all like that. I don't know how often it happens. Um, the potential lifetime of the litigation and, and really a lot of what drives it too, I think, can be the plaintiff's appetite, um, the plaintiff's bar appetite for that tort. So whatever you figure out with the client as the goal, that has got to be the top of mind at every strategic decision because especially if the litigation lasts, those things need to be brought up and evaluated and examined to see if they're still relevant goals. Um, Ryan, I think the other really important thing is is the role that each person and each maybe law firm even plays in mass litigation. You want to talk a bit about that? Sure. Um, it's a it's a mantra that um, I've used. I've heard clients use. It's one if you're involved in mass tort, it should be one that's always top of mind for you. It's knowing your role. Um, you know, a, a typical lawsuit and case that many lawyers are used to is here, here's your case, run with it from the day you file it through trial and handle all pieces of it or, or your firm will handle all pieces of that. But, but mass tort is almost always different and it's different because you're typically dealing with cases across multiple jurisdictions across the country, um, just different locales, different issues and 
oftentimes the volume is so large that no one firm can or should handle all the pieces of it if you're really trying to be successful. So um, I think I've probably been in all of these roles at one point or another throughout my career, whether it's national, local, expert counsel, or, or focusing on legal issues. Um, but it's really important to, to know your role. And there's this term, I think, that's been thrown around a lot in the last probably five to 10 years now that most of us can, can work remotely, we've seen in the pandemic, but this idea of a virtual law firm. And it's this concept that, that clients have multiple firms working together, cooperating for one goal, um, defense of the mass tort, success in that mass tort. Um, and so knowing your role and being accountable for that role is so important. And, and I'll give some examples. If you're in the, the national council role, you're obviously developing the strategy to win the litigation across the case, or sorry, across the country, and win can have many different definitions. But, but you're coming up with the strategy that's going to apply across the country. Now, at the same time, you know, you're effectuating that role and trying to, to be the great national counsel. You need to know your role and the role of others, whether it's your local counsel or your expert counsel. And I'll tell you why. I, I, oftentimes, the national counsel, you can analogize it to the general up on top of the hill. And you may have your local counsel down in the trenches in various parts um, on the battlefield. You may have your expert counsel. Let's put them perched up on a tree doing what they're doing um, to give this, this war analogy. But, but if you don't know what's going on in each locale, you could be sending your local counsel into a total buzzsaw of a certain judge in a certain jurisdiction that although your marching orders across the country are one thing, that locale, uh, it's just not going to work. And so not just knowing your role as a national counsel, but knowing the roles of, of local counsel and others is critical. The flip side of that, as local counsel, you need to know what your role is um, if it's a support role for trial lawyers that are coming in, if it's a support role for your national counsel. And you need to stay within that role and within that lane and do that really, really well uh, unless you're asked to do more. I think a lot of times the, uh, the virtual law firm can run into some speed bumps and hiccups when folks are kind of going outside their lane, not doing what they're assigned to do really well first before they look into to other areas. And, but again, as local counsel, if that is your role, know your role, but know what national counsel is dealing with or regional counsel or expert counsel. Don't make your decisions on a local level in a vacuum without thinking of the big picture. Don't have blinders on. Um, I think you'll, you'll see a lot more success that way. You'll be valued a lot more both by your national counsel and your, and your clients if, you, if you're doing that. Um, and then knowing your role goes hand in hand with, with building trust. I mean, the only way these virtual law firms work and are successful with the client are built on relationships and trust. Um, and I've been in good situations in virtual law firms and not so good situations. Um, and I, I often look at, are you dealing with a cooperative environment or a competitive environment? And it should never be the latter in that situation. Um, you need to build the trust with whoever else is on your team. If you make a mistake, you need to own it. When there's credit due, you need to give it to the person where it's due. Clients hate nothing more than their, their partners in different law firms 
that are trying to jockey for a better role in the litigation or new work down the road, they can see it a mile away. It doesn't happen. I mean, it's at least in my experience, it's been rare. But when it does, boy, does it does it stink up the room? I mean, you really does not look good. And so, again, trust, knowing your role, being accountable for your role. Those are all keys to to your successful mass tort management. And then, Ashley, there's there's one other topic I think we're going to talk about today uh, that we'll both handle together and that's that's how to choose your team. Yes, this is my favorite. This is my favorite topic because it is so important and we have a really good team, I think. Um and and it has branched out into other more than one client. Um we have a core group of people that we're able to put into mass torts and with a few satellite people really really have an effective operation. Yeah, and I can't <clears throat> I can't stress this point enough, choosing your team and choosing it wisely. Uh, I analogize it to the head coach and and pick your sports team. Um, The head coaches, they get all the glory, but they also get all the blame. Um, So what does that mean? It means you need to fill out that roster strategically, not with your friends, not who you've worked necessarily with in the past, but the best people for the job. And that means not just yourself and within your own firm, but whether you consider other law firms. Uh, I will share a little personal insight. You know, earlier in my career, when you're trying to get opportunities, you say yes to everything and you want to do every hearing, trial, brief, whatever it is. But, but as you get a little further in your career, you realize that, you know what, I may not be the best lawyer for that hearing or that judge or that deponent. Um, And you need to continue to reflect on that with yourself, within your law firm and outside the law firm so that you're getting the right person for the job, for the client in that instance. Um, Yeah, Ashley, I wanted wanted you to talk a little bit about kind of what the different um, team players are in a typical mass tour and and why they're important. Sure, and I, before we go to that, to that topic, I wanted to add an, an anecdote about your, to your point about picking the right person for the right deponent. And this wasn't in the mass tour context, but it was in an, a products context. And it was a, the decision to have an associate who was a, was a, a, a tool related product and the associate had prior experience using that exact tool. And it just made a lot of sense to say, okay, we're going to send this this associate to the product inspection. Or even we've had that come up in a deposition where the, the subject matter, you have people who have outside experience. And it's really important to be looking at who you have in your roster to say, all right, was this person with specialized knowledge going to bring something additional to an otherwise pretty standard deposition? And, and I think when you do make changes like that or substitutions or you're picking and you go to your client and you explain why you're doing it. Hey, this person may be pretty junior mm-hmm. in terms of taking, but they have this expertise. Yep. Or, you know what? We would normally handle this, but I think this lawyer at that other law firm would be really good for this. And here's why. Clients really respect that. And again, that builds the trust up that you're really trying to win. You're not just trying to hoard the work for yourself or within your own firm that you're, you're trying to meet the client's goals. Yeah. And so going into the the discussion of who you slot in where in your roster, there are lots of 
roles, and sometimes the roles might overlap, but your litigation manager, your strategic thinker. And I mean, those two things, Ryan, to your point earlier, that all lawyers really can benefit by learning and, and thinking about how to become better managers. And I think that's true. I also think there's some people who just really like it and are kind of naturally good at it. And, and probably some of us who really like it and become better at it just by virtue of doing it. So um, the important thing is, is all right, we want to encourage people to develop a whole host of skills, but who's our go-to when you need um, you need a closer for a hearing? Who do you tap to say, all right, I'm going to prep you and send you in when we need this result? I mean, I can I think of folks we use for that purpose. I think of the niche we have where you have a lot of need for expert development and working with some of the expert managers um, on a regional and national level. And it's great to have someone on your team you can call up and say, all right, here are the facts of this case. Here are some of the expert issues. Is there anything we need to do early on to make sure we've got all the science parts lined up because we're going to get a really short trial date. And so those are are pieces that's important and it's good both to spot natural talent and then further develop it where needed and also to ask lawyers on your team, what's your interest? What is something that you are interested and and wanting to learn more about? Because I think you can't just look at immediate needs this year. You have to look at, all right, what if this litigation grows? What if we're asked to start taking on a more active role in X arena? You need to make sure that before you get to that point, you have people who are prepared and ready to take on those new challenges. Um, Ryan, now you, I mean, I wanted to also lob this one back to you because you've been working and putting together a team for a while. And so I think that one of the things that we both agree on is how important paralegals are. And that is something that you're building it. When you're building a team, you cannot undervalue the need for someone with both a lot of experience in the management and then a lot of um, institutional knowledge. I think both those things are important. Yeah, and I'm going to go out on a limb and, and say this, and some of my colleagues may not agree with me, but I, I think in mass tort litigation, there is no other type of litigation where a, par- a good paralegal is as, is as valuable and as necessary. Uh, you know, maybe real estate and closing, things like that. But because you're dealing with such volume and you need someone that can can really whittle things down, master everything, organize it, wield it for you and your team. I mean, we're talking, you and I, we live in the world of spreadsheets. I Mm -hmm. never thought I would go to law school and think spreadsheets, I need to learn Excel. But that's the only way you can keep track of such massive amounts of of information and plaintiffs and be able to have on-the-spot answers for your clients. So, So paralegals, being able to handle that is so important. And then there's the investigation piece, which we deal with is a huge part of of mass tort cases because you're constantly trying to figure out the facts, the plaintiffs, their story, the product, uh, and and a paralegal's investigatory skills are are just invaluable for, for that as well. And I, I I was going to add too that it's so important too that I think associates from the beginning also be trained to do all of those things, not necessarily routinely, but frequently we do with such a volume of cases that inevitably one case will be on the eve of trial and five more cases will need active management. And 
it's important not that you have associates you want to have doing um, more of the ministerial tasks, but they need to know it because in a pinch, you've got to be able to get in up to your elbows. Well, that's a perfect example of knowing your role and knowing the role of others. Because yeah. if, if you don't know what it is your paralegal does, mm-hmm. not only can you not do it, but I don't think you can appreciate the capabilities, the timing. Um, are you asking for things that are just totally out of yeah. the realm of, of completion? And then are you over-promising to your client because you, you've just made a promise that your team can't fulfill? So that, that's a really great point, Ashley. And, and just tying that back into something, I think that we were talking at the beginning of ways to become more efficient and develop more efficacy overall in the litigation. I think one thing that I have employed, and I think, honestly, I think I learned it from you. I don't know, but I'm going to credit you with it. I'll take it. But um, <laughs> is, you know, ask the people you're working with, okay, is this process, if a process is breaking down, this process is not working. Like, can you tell me why you think it's not working? What would be helpful to you? I did that recently and just ask, you know, okay, there seems to be a log jam happening. What, what needs to be done from your perspective? Because it's very easy, especially the higher up you go in your career to look down and say, oh, that's such an easy fix. Just do this. But when you're managing something, as much as you're managing these litigation um, issues, all of the litigation issues require people who are in the cogs and like working them for you. And so you have to talk to them and, and learn from their immediate experience, what needs to be tweaked. That's a really good point, Ashley. And um, we're going to close this out with, with a little bonus uh, tip that, that was not in our article, but as, as Ashley and I were preparing for this podcast, uh, it dawned on me, and frankly, it probably should have been in our article, but it's a good thing we're doing the podcast now, and then we can share it. Um, one key tip, if you're involved in mass tort litigation around the country, that, that is often overlooked because this person is typically seen as the enemy by your client, oftentimes by you. It's the relationships you have with plaintiff's lawyers on the other side of, of cases, and, uh, and being able to manage different personalities and who you deal with and how you deal with them in terms of meeting your client's goals. Um, and Ashley, I know you'll chuckle because we'll think of different adversaries we have in, in litigation and, and how different we handle them. Some, um, they're just incorrigible and doesn't matter how nice you try to be or accommodating, they're just going to be difficult because they think that helps them with the case. Okay, you know what to do with that person. There are others that are more reasonable. There are others that are just business people. There are others that think they're um, saving the world and it doesn't matter what kind of reasonable idea you throw their way, they're gonna stick to this principle that they've um, assigned for themselves. So, and Ashley, you even know, we, we know we deal with certain lawyers and we have certain of our defense lawyers that we assign to cases like that because they work well together. So it's not always about going to do battle and winning um, with your adversaries, but it's, it's still two human beings, relationships, personalities, and that can be a huge value for your client if you're able to navigate those successfully in mass tort. Not every case goes to a trial. <laughs> Some of them are settled. Um, sometimes if you're just so difficult, you're going to create more fights for your client that they just don't need. So uh, Ashley, do you have any kind of thoughts or comments 
on that bonus tip. No, but that is a great bonus tip. And I will also add that there were two other tips that we didn't talk about that are in our article, which I would encourage everyone listening to this podcast to read if you want um, more strategies for successful mass tort management. It's available on Carlton Fields' website. And if anyone has questions for me or for Ryan, you can reach us uh, via email. My email is adrum, two M's and drum, at carltonfields.com. Ryan? And mine is rcobbs at carltonfields.com. This podcast is intended for general information and educational purposes only and should not be relied on as if it were advice about a particular fact situation. The distribution of this podcast is not intended to create, and receipt of it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship with Carlton Fields. Thanks for listening.